My name is Cody King, and I'm on staff here, and um, just want to say welcome once again. We're glad that you're here, and it's my privilege this morning to be able to share with you as we continue on in our series in Romans. Uh, we're in, in week five, and last week um, we took a look at some of the more difficult scripture in our Bible, where Paul uses some very strong language to address specifically the depravity of man, just how degenerate um, mankind can be, how we, verse 18, we've suppressed the truth um, and we've chosen then to reverse God's created order and to begin worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And then as we saw in there in Paul's very vivid and clear but strong language on how quickly um, we digress from that. When we take God out of his rightful place and begin to put other things and even ourselves above and in the position where he should be, how quickly things fall apart and things come off the rails. And God's response to that is to give people up to that. Uh, three different times, it says in verse 26 and verse 24, uh, there's 24, 26, and 28, that God gave the people over to a debased mind, to the lusts and desires of the flesh, to do what ought not be done. Very strong language to show the degenerate nature of mankind. But this morning in chapter 2, he adjusts his focus in a way. He's still speaking about the problem that we all have. If verses in chapter 1, 16 and 17, if that's the cure, that righteousness comes by faith, for faith, that we have salvation in that way, if that is the cure, he takes a good deal of time from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3 of describing what the disease actually is. And understanding what that is really helps us to appreciate what the cure is in chapter 1, 16 and 17. So for our time this morning as we look at chapter 2, there's some things that I want us to note about this. One is um, who Paul's speaking to. If you were to look at chapter 1, you would see in verses 18 through 32 how often Paul says these pronouns of they, them, and their. Right? It says God gave them up to a debased mind. It is them who suppress the truth. But the pronoun is as if Paul is talking about someone else. And what we're prone to do is listen to Paul and read what Paul is saying to this church in Rome, and we could nod our heads in some ways. We could have someone in mind. Yep, they, them, them. Yep, I can see that. <laughs> sure enough, do it. But what Paul does in chapter 2 is something that is, is certainly purposeful because Paul understands, one, because of chapter 1, the nature of mankind and what we're prone to do. But he also understands who he's writing to. So in chapter 2, there's a pronoun change. It goes from the third person to the second person singular of you. And in, in verses 1 through 5, he says you over and over and over. He wants the reader to understand that he is speaking to them. He's no longer speaking about someone else that's not there. He's speaking to the reader directly. Now, who's the reader? For us, this will help us as we continue to move on through this, is who the you is in chapter 2. Right? So chapter 17, he makes very clear who he's talking to there. He says you, the subject of you, is the Jew. 17 and following, he's speaking to the Jews. But as we learned last week, if last week he was speaking to the Gentiles, all of humanity falls into two categories. 
You have the Gentiles and you have the Jew. You have the Jewish nation, who is God's chosen people, and you have the Gentile, which is everyone else. So we all fall into those categories. We're either Jew or we're Gentile, everyone else. Last week, he spoke primarily to the Gentile. But as he adjusts his focus to the reader this morning, he's addressing the Jew primarily. But it could be understood at the same time to be Jew and Gentile because he's writing again to the Roman church, which is made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. But as far as just history of that church, it's helpful to know that at one point in time, the church in Rome did have Gentile believers and Jewish believers. But the Roman emperor made all the Jewish people leave Rome at one point in time. But five years later, they were then allowed to come back. So you have five years of a church in Rome made up of Gentile believers. And then all of a sudden, you have a bunch of Jewish believers allowed to come back. Now you imagine the conflict within the church body that can possibly begin to arise when you're bringing the two together once again. You can look at the rest of the letters of the New Testament, how Paul addresses a Gentile point of view of salvation versus a Gentile view of salvation. But he adjusts his focus here. I think it's purposefully. And then some may say that Paul's target is to the moralist. Now, moralist is someone who wants to regulate the morality of others. Anybody know a moralist? Is anybody a moralist in here? Nobody's honest? Okay. You're a moralist. But I'm teasing on that. But some would say that it's the moralist, that Paul is addressing that person that in their self-righteousness, they believe that they're better than other people. And they may look at his list and what he says in chapter 1 and just, yep, I can see that, Paul. You're absolutely right. They deserve what they get. But Paul adjusts that focus. It's primarily to the Jewish moralist. So in chapter 1, he describes the degenerate nature of all humanity addressing the culture that the Romans lived in. But now, by no stretch of the imagination, you can look at what we learned and read last week. And if you weren't, didn't, weren't here for last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. But chapter, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, if you read that list, is by no stretch of the imagination can you look at that culture and overlay our culture and see the same thing take place. So for our purposes this morning, anywhere that we read you this morning... Instead of looking primarily at a Jewish audience, we should put ourselves in place of who Paul's talking to because we can all learn something this morning from it. And then the second thing that I want us to really think through and have in our minds before we begin is whose standard of morality are these people seeking to hold other people to? Because in our culture specifically, there are a lot of standards of morality. There are a lot of people saying that this is what's moral, that's not what's moral, and they're holding and basing their entire lives in the way they decide to do things based on their own morality. And we will see how debunked that really becomes in light of Paul's argument. But for our culture today, there's, there's a certain standard of morality as it per, pertains to sexual, sexual identity, gender identity, self-efficacy. But whose standard are we held to? And God's word makes abundantly clear that we are held to his standard. And it is his absolute standard that we will be judged by absolutely in the end. So he's going to shift his focus to the moralist Jew. And we're not going to be talking about salvation this morning. We're going to talk about judgment. The topic of our time this morning is judgment. For the next probably 30 minutes, 
we're going to be talking about judgment. And it's not entirely easy, but it is nonetheless the truth. And we need to come away with it. It is judgment for all. So three things that we want to learn that I want to help us see about what God's judgment is, is that one, it is impartial, or it is inescapable, impartial, and then it is universal, and that is according to truth, it's according to works, it's according to knowledge of the law. There's our boxes that I want to put this scripture in this morning. And as we begin, I want to start with Luke, oddly enough, Luke chapter 18, verses 9, I want to read this where Luke says this, he says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And I want to get to the parable later on. But what Paul is going to unpack for us in this is there are always going to be people, have this in our minds this morning, there will always be people that are confident of their own righteousness and they will look down on everyone else. And this message this morning is for them. Please resist the urge to tap the leg of the person sitting beside you. Because it's for you. And it's for me. Cool? So I'm going to pray for us real quick and we're going we're gonna to get going. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for your word. I thank you for, um, for the Apostle Paul, for calling a man that was once once fighting against you with every bit of his being, Lord, and he didn't even know it. He didn't know what he didn't know, but he believed he knew what he knew. But I thank you for calling and changing a man and giving him the words and the wisdom to write to us today, to the Jews then, Lord, to help us see, Lord, um, where we all ultimately fall before you. And just help us this morning as we walk through this text, Lord, to uh, come away with a better understanding not of others, Lord, but a better understanding of ourselves. Uh, Lord, and to that end, Lord, it is in your name we pray. Amen. So number one, God's judgment is inescapable, and that is according to truth. Verses one and two, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, we can read that right there, and we can put ourselves in a frame of mind of, well, I'm not one that judges. I don't judge people. I'm nice to each their own. You do you, boo, right? I don't judge people, right? And we can automatically put ourselves in a mind frame of, okay, I'm, I'm going to listen to what you have to say, but I'm not really going to take it to heart because, you know, I really don't judge people. But Paul says, every one of you who judges, listen. And he says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now you might think, well, I don't practice the same things. If I read chapter 1, I don't do those things. I don't struggle with homosexuality. I don't struggle with taking God off of his throne. So one, I might think, I don't judge people and I don't practice such things. But like I've done in the past, I put the emphasis of chapter 1 on the wrong place. I take it and I look at what God gave them over to and I was like, well, I don't do those things, so God's not giving me over to those things. But I want to remind us real quick of the list that we can probably negate in some ways at the end of chapter 1. In verse 29, he says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There's no less than 20 things 
that Paul says Gentiles do. Well, we're all Gentiles in here. But nonetheless, he says to the Jews, the Jew, Jewish moralist, you practice the very same things. And don't say that you don't. And me confessing this morning, I have been disobedient to my parents. I've been foolish. I've been heartless to people. I've been ruthless to people before. I've been deceitful. I've been malicious in my speech. I've certainly been covetous. I've invented evil before. I've come up with ways to be more rebellious to God. That's just me. But understanding, I have nowhere to stand as it pertains to this. Paul is saying, every one of you who judges, you condemn yourself in passing judgment on another, for you practice the very same things. Then he says, verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So he says, we know. We is proverbial we. It's, it's Paul and the reader. We know because we just read it. Paul's like, I just wrote it. You just read it. So we know that the judgment of God is going to rightly fall on those who practice these things. He says, we know. I just said it. But the word rightly in the Greek, it literally means according to truth. He says, the judgment of God according to truth falls on those who practice such things. And when I think of the truth, I can look at verse 16. If you look, at with me, look down there with me, it says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus, Jesus is going to be the judge. But when I think of truth, and if it's according to truth that we're judged, and Jesus is going to be the truth, be the, tr- be the judge, I think of what Jesus says even about him himself. In John 14, 6, he says that, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. In John 16, 16, he says, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So you have Jesus, the embodiment of truth, and then he sends his spirit and is the spirit of truth to then be a guide to us in the truth. So what is the conviction of the Spirit in our life if it's not by truth? And the point is to lead us to repentance in verse 4. But then Jesus says in John 17, 17, he says, to G- he says, praying on behalf of believers, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So if we're sanctified by the truth, it has got to be that same standard that we will be judged by. Because God is not going to be duplicitous. He's not going to sanctify us by a truth, but then come over here and then judge us by a different truth because then where is the standard that we're beheld to? So we're judged according to truth. In Matthew, after, Matthew 7, Jesus gives this example. Um, and he says this uh, in verse 1. He says, judge not that you not be judged. That is very clear. Paul's going to take 16 verses to tell the Jewish people something they need to to help them understand their situation. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear right there. He just simply says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Then he says this. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is this log sticking out of your own eye? And then he says, he calls it what it is. He says, you hypocrite. 
Just straight up. He's like, you are being hypocritical when you do that. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, the point here is, church, is that we all have something in our eye. We all have something in our eye, and we need to deal with what's in our eye before we start trying to deal with other people's specks. It's what he's very clearly saying. That's the point that he's getting at. But now for the Jew that he's writing to, depending on the timing of the circulation of Matthew's gospel that includes what Jesus just said, they might not have heard Jesus speak so clearly about it. But they do have the law. They have the stories of old. They have a story in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where after David gets caught in adultery, murder, and hypocrisy, and what he did in, in seeing this woman bathing, Bathsheba, and then taking and sleeping with her, getting her pregnant, trying to cover that up, ends up getting her husband killed. In all of his power, David tried to cover up what he did. And then Nathan comes to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and he tells him the story. He didn't go to him and tell him straight up what the truth is and just lay it out for him, but he goes and tells him the story. He tells him that there's a rich man and a poor man. It says this rich man has many herds and many flocks, but this poor man just has one lamb, and he absolutely loves this lamb. He feeds it from his table. He sleeps with this lamb. It goes everywhere with him. He loves this lamb. Then one day a traveler came to stay with the rich man. And the rich man, instead of taking a lamb or a, a, a sheep to feed this traveler from his own flock and his, or his own herds, he goes and takes this poor man's lamb and feeds it to the traveler. And immediately in the story, King David becomes angered and indignant against that, that man. He said he should be put to death. That lamb should be paid back fourfold. And he's right. You hear that story. I was like, that's horrible. That's absolutely horrible that a man would do that. So he's, he's, he's correct in his response, but he's perfectly okay with what he has done. And what Nathan does in that, he tells him this story, then immediately Nathan says, you are the man. It's you. As the story goes on, you see how David responds to that. He doesn't fight back. He accepts it. He's like, by golly, Nathan, you're right. Didn't quite say it like that, I'm sure. <laughs> but nonetheless, Nathan tells him the story. But, but, but King David, this is King David with all his power, everything at his disposal could not keep hidden what he did. But he was perfectly okay with it. And as soon as he heard a story about someone else, he was immediately angered and indignant. And that person should die. That lamb should be paid back. Yes, you're right, David. But you know what? That's you. I encourage you to read that story in 2 Samuel chapter 12 to see how the Lord's judgment falls out in that. But the point is, is that nothing will remain hidden. Nothing we do will remain hidden. Luke 12, uh, verse 1 through 3 says... When so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Again, Jesus calling it what it is, hypocrisy. Then he says this in verse 2, he says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. 
Everything will eventually out. Everything. And the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice evil. Again, we all, in some way, suppress the truth. Romans 3.23, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have something in our eye. And everything will out. Verse 3 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches uh, of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And it's God's kindness and mercy that is not meant for the Jew or the Christian to continue on in the little sins that we're comfortable with. The little things that we do to kind of move along and not have to deal with something more difficult. It's the little white lies that we take. But God's mercy and his kindness, his forbearance, isn't meant to allow us to continue on in that. It's meant to prompt us to repentance, not keep us in a place of, hey, I'm not that bad. Because as long as there's someone worse, we can convince ourselves that we're not that bad. But in the end, God's judgment falls impartially. And it's inescapable. And it's according to his truth. And the truth is, is that God is holy. And that we are sinners. And that sin separates us from a holy God. That is the truth. And God's righteousness brings him to a point where he has to judge it. And again, what is the conviction of the Spirit if it's not by truth to lead us to repentance? So we're warned not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, understanding ourselves, not believing God views us differently than others. Max Anders, he says, truth has only one lens, one lens which through which, I'm going to start that over. Truth has only one lens through which it looks and judges. So it is inescapable and it is according to truth. So the second point is that God's judgment is impartial according to works. It is impartial according to works. Verse 5 through 11, uh, Paul says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So he's, he's making this clear distinction. Is there's going to be eternal life, there's going to be wrath and fury. Those two things are a reality. Now again, this is not regarding salvation. This is regarding judgment in what he's saying. And I'll get more on that point here in a second. But verse 9, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, um, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now verse 5 should draw our minds back to chapter 1, verses 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Right, so the wrath of God is revealed. It's not just coming. The wrath of God is revealed. Right? His, it's, it's revealed in the giving of people over to their sinfulness. Right? That is the revealing of it. Is God just, you know what? You can have it. Deal with, deal with it. But the goal is to experience the consequences of that and to return to repentance. 
Because at the same time, it is the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience that is also meant to lead them to repentance. Verse 4. It's his patience and mercy that does not judge them now. It's his patience and mercy for us that we don't experience his judgment now. Now, there are consequences to sin, absolutely. But there's not judgment now. And that's his mercy. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 Uh, Peter says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is wonderful news. This is perhaps the most wonderful news outside of Jesus raising from the dead in your Bible. Is that God is patient. He's not slow as we count slowness. He wants everyone to come to Prentice. He doesn't want anyone to perish. When we read chapter 1, and we can get this all conflicted and out of order. As we look at the judgment of God, and we think, how can a loving God judge anyone? It's because he's loving, he's righteous, he's just. And we completely negate the truth and the blessing of God and the glory of God. And that he's patiently waiting. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But all to come to repentance. So his response is to give people over to their sin. You want it, you got it. But there's a consequence to what you're doing. And his heart is that they would experience that consequence and it would prompt them. Man, I have screwed up. I really am this, what he says. And it would prompt them to repentance and a turning. There's story after story after story, church, of people in this body who have lived a rebellious life and they've experienced the consequences of that rebelliousness and it prompted them to a brokenness and a contrite heart and a returning to the Lord and a repentance. Church, that is a story of my life as I experienced the consequences of my sin and it left me lonely without much of anything in despair and it brought me to repentance and it changed everything about me. That is the mercy, it's the kindness, the forbearance, the patience of God. However, there is an urgency. There is still time if he is patient, but there still should be an urgency within his church. If you look at 2 Peter 3, verse 10, following that statement, Peter says, but, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away and with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And he will one day on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will will be revealed, verse 6, he will render to those according to his works. Psalm 62, 12, for you will for. Speaking to God, for you will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? And then Jesus in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And he will repay each person according to what he has done. Verse 7 will be rewards and eternal life. Verse 8 is penalty and wrath and fury. Now you may perceive, and some have perceived, a contradiction here. But remember, this is not salvation by works. It is judgment by works. Salvation will always be by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So let's not get 
that mixed up in what, we're, what Paul is talking about here. But his point is that a person will be judged by their works, not saved by them. So if someone indeed persists, if someone persisted continuously in well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, that is living a sinless life, what Paul is getting at is that God's righteousness and his righteous judgment would require giving them eternal life. It's what he's saying. For those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Remember, this isn't about salvation. This is about judgment. So according to the law, if one could hold to the law, to the letter of the law, and live a sinless life, God's righteous judgment would implore him, require him to give them eternal life. So in theory, the law can save us, even the Gentile, but not in practice. Again, Romans 3.23, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all in some way suppress the truth. Chapter 1, verses 18. So Paul's point here is hypothetical. And for those who are going to be judged, which is everyone, verse 11, for God shows no partiality, they should not be judging others, is the overarching point. Right in the middle. So God's judgment is impartial and it's according to works. And lastly, God's judgment is universal and it's according to knowledge of the law. And here's a more complicated portion of what Paul is saying. But it helps answer the fairness question. You ever got the fairness question? How can a loving God send someone who's never heard of Jesus to hell? If there's someone somewhere on this planet and they've never heard the name Yahweh, they've never heard Jesus, how could God condemn them? Well, this section of Scripture gives you your answer for that. From an apologetic standpoint, here you go. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. You see what he's saying? Even though they do not have the law. Verse 15 They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So if you don't know your Bible, when when we talk about the law, the Jews had the Mosaic law. It was made up of of moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. There were three categories of laws that that embodied how God instructed his people to live their life. Um, But the Gentiles, they did not have that. There is no law for them. It only was given to the Jews. So the Jew, as they read this in Paul's day, they could read this and it could be very difficult for them to take what he's saying. Because they could probably respond. A Jew may say, I've been lawing it up my entire life and now you're telling me that these Gentiles who I know based on the law to be pagan, heathen, godless people, now you're telling me that the law that I've been beheld to my entire life, to which they have not, I'm going to be judged more strictly than them because they don't have it. And Paul effectively says, yes. Get over yourself. That's not what he says. 
But Max Anders, he says, he says this, um, as I have this for you on the screen, I think it's a good, it's a good bit from him that just kind of helps us see really what the Jew is dealing with at this point. He says, a Jew, but or any person with great access to the word and will of God, but who practices none of it, will be held far more accountable than a Gentile or any person who possesses a minimal amount of information about God, but who practice faithfully what he or she knew. Then he says, this was one of the new realities of the kingdom of God, of the mystery of the uniting, uh, uniting of the Jew and Gentile into one body that the Jewish believers in Rome were going to have to get used to. God's chosen people were no longer chosen to be treated differently than the Gentiles. And I can see them reading this in this congregation and squirming in their seats like, I don't want to believe that. But verse 12, Paul effectively answers their question. Yes, you are going to be held and judged more strictly because you have what you needed. You had it. Church, may we not have the word of God and not abide by it, but seek to hold someone else to its standard and be perfectly okay with not. I mean, that's the bedrock point. I think we could wrap up right there. That's the point that he's getting to. But all will be judged. Remember, it's impartial. Sinful actions make one liable to judgment whether that one has the law or not. But now let's check out verse 13. And here's his argument in verse 13. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You ever heard the, the phrase, um, the road to hell of, is paved with good intentions? I mean, a lot of us intend to do things, intend to do good things. But what is intention without action, if not stagnation? Right. We can intend to do a lot, but if we don't put action with the intentions that we have, we'll never move forward. We'll continue to be aware of what God's word says and never do what God's word says. Look at the way James puts this brilliantly in, um, in the New Testament. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, he says clearly, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Every one of us wants to be blessed in our doing, but we refuse sometimes to do what we know we're being told to do. Be it a problem with authority, be it a problem with control, be it a problem with just, oh, that's going to make me uncomfortable. We have it. It's not going to be an excuse for us. He says, don't be deceived. Paul's writing this to the Jews in the first century, yes, but it is, it, is, it is for us in a big way today. God's word is timeless. It is as much effective today for us as it was then. But may we cease in deceiving ourselves, believing that we're better than others because we have his word or we have his spirit, but we're not walking in either. That's King David being angry and indignant at everything around us because yes, it's jacked up. 
You don't have to look far. You don't have to look far through your Facebook feed to see a culture that is depraved and is degenerate and is struggling, but they don't need a church condemning them for it. Romans 8.1, when we get there, I'm so pleased that we're going through Romans right now. We need this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But there is judgment, and there's judgment for a world that is apart from him. Though they know of God, they're without excuse. Again, chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. But they do not know what they do not know. And how are they to know if they're not told? But the manner in which we tell them matters. It matters greatly. Paul didn't begin this letter with chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 in chapter 2. He gets very clearly to our issue, but he starts with the cure. Here's the cure. It is salvation. It is righteousness by faith, through faith. It is the power of gospel of the gospel for salvation. There's your cure. Understand the disease. We have to lovingly present that to people and quit judging people. Yes, they're sinful, but guess what? You are too. I am too. So the better question this morning is, what do you know? And think through what you know. What do I know? When we think through what we know, how does our life reflect what we claim to know? That is the most imperative thing that we need to get to is a self-examination. So as I said, this answers the fairness question here in 14 through 16. In verse 14, he says, For when the Gentiles by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. So this is more akin to the moral requirements of the law, the, the loving your neighbor as yourself, not bearing false witness uh, against someone else, not necessarily talking about the aspects of the law when it comes to sacrifices, but by nature... There is an innate sense of right and wrong within every one of us. There's an innate sense of good and bad. I mean, from the fall, you have Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are aware. Again, we suppress that truth, chapter one, but we are aware nonetheless. Innately, we're created in the image of God. We're image bearers of him. So we have an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Now, culturally, we can grow up in different places. There's different places that may believe this is okay versus this being okay. But nonetheless, we all understand within ourselves that this is mine. It's not yours. If you take it from me, we got a problem. Or that's yours, it's not mine. So I can't just go take it out of your hand and walk away and it's all right. No, we understand some things to be right and wrong call it common grace, if you will, or a moral code. But a moral code is an imperfect reflection of the morality of God instilled in every one of us. And we see that most clearly in the law. But now Jew, Gentiles do not have it. So verse 15, though, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The implication, though, is that, that no one lives up to their own moral code or the moral code of the culture around them. No one lives up to it. It's present, but no one lives up to him, is what he says. It's, it's their conscience that gives them away, accusing or defending them for the things that they do. Chuck Swindoll said that guilt is a universal reaction to doing something one's personal ethic forbids. 
If you've ever felt guilty in your life, you felt guilty because you knew you did something wrong. Never mind it being clearly from God's word, the law or not, your conscience gave you away in the fact that you felt guilty for it. In verse 16, it is the Lord who knows the secrets of men, these secrets of men, these thoughts that we have that give us away. And he will use these thoughts as evidence against us on the day of judgment. And again, that judgment will come in verse 16 by Christ Jesus. Acts 17, 31. He has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And now I believe it's important to kind of state this here that, um, that Paul is not saying that we should be undiscerning. And we all make judgments every day. We all make judgment calls. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're sinful in what we're doing. So we don't need to be undiscerning of things. Paul addresses an issue in, in 1 Corinthians 5 within the church in Corinth um, of a man who's having an affair with his father's wife. That's not to say it's his mother, for they had multiple wives probably. But nonetheless, he was, he was in adultery. It's his father's wife and he's having an affair with her. And it's allowed within the body. So Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, this is how he responds to them. He says, For, for, for though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul's not even there. He gets word of what's happening, and he pronounces judgment. And he, he, he's not doing that simply because he has apostolic authority. But he's a brother in Christ and he hears of sin that's prevalent and allowed within a body of believers. He knows how destructive that is and he judges it. And then what he goes on to say is you need to remove him. You need to get him out of your church. If there's unrepentant sin, we need to call sin, sin church, always. We shouldn't be undiscerning. We should be calling sin, sin. How else do we help convict a world of their sin? Don't miss. Read what I said. But how else do we help people see if we don't call sin, sin? We have to call sin, sin. And Paul goes on to say, though, in verse 5, he says to deliver him over. And the word deliver there is the same word from chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28, where God gave them up. Paul uses the same word to say, you deliver this man over, specifically in this case, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. We may read that and like, what? That's pretty bad. I thought grace, mercy, forbearance. And we can misinterpret what he says. We can look at that, destruction of the flesh to Satan. I mean, it's pretty bad. But what he continues to say is so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's judgment was in effect, it was in an effort to bring the man to repentance so that he would be saved on the day of judgment. The most loving thing that we can do sometimes, church, is call sin, sin. And to disallow it to continue within the presence of the church so that we can give people over to it so that they would experience the consequence, hopefully, and they would return to repentance. Because otherwise, we run the risk of allowing that hypocrisy to live and grow within our body. 
May it not be so in that. So we don't need to be undiscerning, but we do not need to be judging others. The point here is to not fall into the sin of hypocrisy. So for someone to say, you're a hypocrite because you're trying to tell me I need to quit sinning and I need to turn to Jesus, that's truth, but you do the very same thing. In that sense, we're all hypocrites because we're all still sinful. But the manner in which we call sin, sin, and the point and the bedrock, the result and what we're going for for that person is to lead them to repentance. Jesus said it, the world's gonna hate us for it. But it matters how we do it. So our warning is against the sin of hypocrisy. Now I want to end where we began. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9 Luke said, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He says in verse 10, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There could not be a more clear distinction than right here of the risk, the risk that we, we run in arrogance and in self-righteousness. And we can read that and be like, that, again, that's jacked up. That's the rich man condemning the poor man or taking from the poor man. And we're like, man, it's messed up. But may we guard our heart to not say, thank you, God, that I'm not like everybody else. How foolish and how damaging and that will bring a swift humbling in the end. When God's judgment, or when God judges, it will be on the basis of his righteousness and his justice. When we do it, it's based purely on self-exaltation. And in the end, it will bring a swift humbling. So let's have a true understanding of ourselves. Let's do the work of, of, of analyzing where we're currently out before we're looking at everyone. Let's do the diligence and work on that plank that's in our eye. We may not believe it's there, but there may be something there, so let's search ourselves. It's Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. It's praying that to the Lord, allowing him to reveal in us the things that we need to confess, the things that we need to repent of, so that we can help lead others to the same repentance. That's, that's the picture But some of the most divisive, some of the most disunifying things within the church is when we believe the worst about one another. And it's difficult. A lot of conversations take place where people are just absolutely believing the worst about one another instead of the best about one another. And we put people in that category. We judge one another without judging ourselves. And it's damaging. It causes disunity within the body, not unity within the body. 
And it puts us out of fellowship with one another and it puts us out of fellowship with the Lord. All things will out. But how much better for us, church, if we're confessing those things and bringing them into the light quickly as the Lord reveals that truth to us and thinking the best of one another, not the worst of one another. If we're, if we're, if we're, if we're Ill, illy judging one another within the church, what does that look like outside the church? And what are we calling people to? They can do that out there. But may we be different within the church. Let's actually judge our own hearts and with whatever time is left, seek an understanding of one another. And it's for his glory, for our good, for the growth of his kingdom, our church here. So judge not so that you may not be judged. Amen? It's tough, but it's truth. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning once again. Lord, I thank you for the challenge of your word, Lord, for, for meeting us where we're at. For always, Lord, right where we're presently at, we have opportunity to stop, to respond to you. to lead ourselves in a way, the Lord, that would lead to eternal life, Lord. And we know that that is, there's no way for that or to that apart from you, Lord. But apart from you, we will never see and understand the depth of our sin and what it actually creates. We can hear it all day long, Lord, but until it resonates within us, Lord, there will never be any movement. And I pray, Lord, for all of us. I pray for the unbeliever that may be in this room, Lord, that does not know you. Lord, but would sit and hear. Hear of a coming judgment, Lord. I pray that it moves their heart. For the salvation of their soul. Not to just come away from judgment, yes, but for the salvation of their soul, for the glory of an eternity with you. Not to just escape judgment, Lord, but to, to experience the reward of a life with you, Lord. I pray for us as a church, Lord, that we would not judge others. We would call sin, sin, absolutely. Help us to be bold enough to do that, but know how to do that with, with grace and mercy and kindness and forbearance, Lord with an aim to repentance, Lord, not condemnation. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ Jesus, your word says that you didn't even come to condemn the world, Lord, but people stand condemned themselves for suppressing the truth that you've made clear. I pray that you help us to see that and walk in that, Lord, and call others to that. For the glory of your kingdom, for the blessing here and now. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Lord, and pray that you're glorified in our last moments, Lord, as we sing to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.